John chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 12. We'll take a turn here from where we have been in John. This is where we are now rapidly moving toward the crucifixion of Christ. Father, now open Your Word to us. Help us hear it. Every ear. Lord, open every ear. We know the enemy loves to fly through here and to pluck away the seed that is thrown out upon this field. He wants to steal it. He wants to choke it. He doesn't want it heard. And we're so distractible. So come now. Holy Spirit, bear fruit through this Your Word. In Christ we pray. Amen. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, these words, this is taking us all the way back to chapter 13 and that scene at the Last Supper as Jesus washes their feet and predicts the betrayal of Judas and the denials of Peter. It takes us through the next chapters where Jesus is instructing His disciples and then into Christ's high priestly prayer in chapter 17. So when Jesus had spoken... These words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there. When Jesus said to them, I am, he drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you have given me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound Him. This is the word of the Lord. More than anything else, the thing that is on display in this passage is the sovereignty of Christ. Which is odd since the whole scene has to do with the arrest of Jesus leading to His trial and execution. Usually, when a man is arrested and carted off to be killed, we see him as a helpless victim. John's whole point is that Jesus was never a helpless victim. From the get-go, He is sovereign Lord of this entire situation. You might remember that back in John 10, verse 17, He had said to His disciples, For this reason the Father loves Me, because I lay down My life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, 
But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. This morning, we want to look at that authority of Jesus as He willingly lays down His life for us, His sheep. And so the enemies come into this garden that evening thinking they're the ones who are in charge. They are in for a rude awakening. So the first thing we see is that really Jesus practically lures His enemies into that garden for this confrontation. And they just set the scene in verses 1 and 2. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, all that He said this evening to His disciples, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which He and His disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed Him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with His disciples. The key bit of information in that passage is, Judas knew this place. This is where Jesus often met with His disciples when He was Jerusalem, when He wanted to get them away from the crowds. Luke 22.38 says it was His custom to meet here. This was a regular habit. So why, if you're seeking to avoid being found by the man you know has gone to betray you, why would you come to the very place you know will be the first place He comes looking for you? Unless, of course, your intention is to be found. And so remember the timeline here. Back in chapter 13, during the Last Supper, Jesus shocked them all by saying, one of you will betray me. And then there's that whole scene where they all begin to ask, Lord, is it me? And Peter motions to John, who is next to Jesus, and says, ask him who it is. And John, uh, Jesus then hands a piece of bread to Judas. And we're told at that moment, Satan Enter him. And Jesus says, what you're going to do, do quickly. And Judas goes off into the night to betray him. So of course Jesus knows this. He knows exactly where Judas has gone and what he's going to do. And he knows that he'll be back very soon with armed men ready to take him off to his death. What would you do in that situation? Get out of town? Run and hide? Instead, Jesus spends the next hour or more calmly teaching His disciples, preparing them for His departure, praying to the Father, and then He leads them out of Jerusalem to the very place He knows that Judas will come looking for Him. It's really unavoidable. Jesus purposefully leads them to this garden. Now, you know it by its name, Gethsemane. Gethsemane was just outside of Jerusalem, up the Mount of Olives, overlooking the temple complex. John tells us that they crossed the, our English translation say the brook Kidron. Really, it's not a brook at all. It was more of of what they call a wadi, a a dry gulch. Uh, There's no water there except during the rainy season. And so they make their way across this great big dry ditch just outside Jerusalem to the east um, and then up the side of the hill until they reach a little olive grove on the hillside. And right in the middle of that olive grove, there was this little walled garden. Gethsemane means oil press. So 
Clearly somebody's built a business there pressing olives to extract the oil and this is where Jesus and his disciples would often meet. Maybe the owner had given them special permission or maybe it was just kind of open to the public when not in use. But it was in this little garden that Jesus chose to confront the betrayer. And it all takes place in a garden. Now that is not without significance. Several commentaries that I read go to lengths to describe the echo of Genesis and Eden in these events. I mean, where was it that Satan, uh, the original betrayer, confronted Adam in hopes of overcoming him and thwarting God's plans? But in a garden. And once again, Satan comes to the garden. Don't forget, he's taken possession of Judas. He's there. He's a part of the story And so he comes to Jesus, the second Adam, in hopes of overcoming him and thwarting God's plan. And so verse 3 says, Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons on cue. The enemy arrives armed to the teeth to take Jesus into custody. A couple of things to notice. First, look at the composition of this crowd. There are Roman soldiers here. We know that because the word John uses, uh, we usually translate it cohort, is only used in the New Testament of a Roman detachment. And based on the word, there could have been at least 200, it could have been more than that, but at the minimum there would have been some 200 men coming. The authorities aren't taking any chances here. They fear and always have some kind of uprising when they try to take Jesus into custody. And Galileans were known troublemakers. And the Romans would increase the presence of the military, especially during Passover, because of the crowd. So it it is not far-fetched at all for the Sanhedrin to say, lend us some troops because we think there's going to be trouble. There were also temple guards in that crowd, as well as Jewish religious officials And so you have this very interesting collaboration between the secular authority of Rome and the religious authority of Jerusalem coming together against Jesus, Jews, and Gentiles as if the whole world has set itself against Christ led by the ruler of this dark world in an effort to overpower Him. And then notice, interestingly, they come not only armed to the teeth with weapons, but they've got swords and lanterns. Now, why swords and lanterns? Well, you're paying attention. You say, well, it's dark. It's night. Well, well, sure. But it's also Passover, which means there was a full moon. I assume they expect him to go run and hide. Right? What else do fugitives do? So they brought these torches and these lanterns to search out whatever nook or cranny he crawls himself into. That's not what's going to happen. Because second thing to see in this passage, Jesus is Lord over this entire situation as He freely surrenders Himself to them. I love the way this begins in verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to Him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? He advances on them. That's not what they're expecting. (laughs) And it says He does this knowing all that was about to come upon Him. Literally, come upon Him is the translation of that. 
And so he, he's got the full view of the playing field. He knows exactly where all this is leading. Again, John's point is that Jesus is no helpless victim being pushed along by circumstances beyond His control. He is the grandmaster of the chessboard. Thirty moves ahead of them and more, positioning each piece where He wants it to be as He willingly submits Himself to the weight and burden of His people's sin that He takes upon Himself. And notice where He positions Himself. This is kind of a theme here. It says He stepped forward to meet them. Now look at that. Jesus puts Himself between them with their evil intent and His disciples behind Him. You think that's just an accident? Even here, the good shepherd is putting Himself between the wolves and His sheep. Then Jesus, knowing all that was about to come upon Him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They walked into that garden thinking they're the ones in charge. Immediately, Jesus is in control of the situation. They answered Him, Jesus of Nazareth. That's His official name, so this is an official thing. Jesus said to them, I am. Judas who betrayed Him was standing there when Jesus said to them, I am. They drew back fell to the ground. What's going on here? This whole crowd seems to have been overpowered by a single phrase from the lips of Jesus. But oh, what a phrase. You probably noticed that I read it a little differently than it's printed in your English translation. Nothing wrong with the translation. That's a legitimate way to translate it. Although it is a particularly intensive way to say, I am He. Uh, oddly intensive in the way that it's phrased. Because it, it really is, I'm convinced, I am. Because it's that ego I me phrase that we have seen several times in our journey through John's Gospel. You remember, hopefully, that when God identified Himself to Moses uh, at the burning bush in Exodus 3, Moses said, Who are you, Lord? What is your name? And God said, I am. I am the everlasting, all-powerful, sovereign God of the universe. That's who I am. And Jesus has been using that same I am throughout the Gospel of John because it is His claim to deity. We've seen it in several places. John 8, 24. Jesus says to His enemies, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that, ego, I me, I am, you will die in your sins. Verse 28 in the same passage, Jesus said to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. To His disciples in John 13, 19, He said to them, I'm I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. And then most dramatically and clearly, John 8, 58, as He's confronted again with His enemies, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And there is no I am He uh, translation possible there. And what happens when He tells them that? Immediately they pick up rocks and they intend to stone Him to death. Why? Because they knew exactly what He was claiming. 
And then just add to that all those other places where he says, I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the light of the world. I am the water of life. I am the way and the truth and the life. There is no access to God at all except through me. So even a casual reader of John's Gospel should have picked up by now that when Jesus uses this phrase, I am, He means much more than, hey, it's me. This is a thunderous statement of His deity. And then just in case we miss it, John lets us know that, well, He wants to make sure we hear the thunder when Jesus speaks at this time. And so He lets us know, verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Wouldn't you like to have seen that? Something in the way Jesus said this carried a weight of authority that hit them like a ton of bricks. I don't know whether it was some supernatural effusion of power that came from Him or they were just stunned by the boldness of His presence, but whatever it was, it overpowers them. They stumble back and fall to the ground before the face of Almighty God. And again, we should be asking the question, Who's in charge here? Because I think the answer is rather obvious. There's only one who is standing at that moment. All the others have toppled to the ground. Now let that image sink in for a little bit. I like the way David Garland put this. He said, these hundreds are hopelessly outnumbered by this one. So what are you afraid of today, Christian? If this one stands with you. And Judas is standing there too, or at least he was standing before Jesus spoke this word. By the way, this is the last time John will ever mention Judas at all. From here on out, Judas simply evaporates from the narrative. John doesn't even mention the kiss or the coming suicide, as if to say, you know, Judas simply is not the point here. His betrayal does not win the day. Yes, he did it. Yes, it was evil. But he's gone. And Christ is the only one still standing. In fact, the scene in verse 7 is almost comical, isn't it? Jesus is standing, and they're all splayed out on the ground. Did they need a moment to compose themselves? Did some of them soil their tunics? I wonder. He even has to help them up, or at least verbally he does in verse 7. He asked them again. So again, notice he's taking the initiative here. He asked them again, Whom do you seek? And I imagine a little more tentatively they say, um, <clears throat> Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. By the way, this is very much a command. He is not pleading with them. He's not playing make a deal. This is not the request of a condemned man seeking a last favor. He is giving orders. You let these men go. And again, what do we see? We see the good shepherd putting himself between the wolves and his sheep. Even here in the hour of his greatest trial, his mind is on them and their good, not himself. For he has come to give his life. John Calvin comments on this and says, 
Here we see how the Son of God not only submits to death of His own accord, that by His obedience He may blot out our transgressions, but also how He discharges the office of a good shepherd in protecting His flock. That's exactly what Jesus said He had come to do. Uh, John 10, verse 11, He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down His life for His sheep. John wants to make sure we see that. And so he connects the dots for us in verse 9 as Jesus says, as he says, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken of those whom you have given me. I have not lost one. This was to fulfill the word. Notice John is putting the statements spoken by Jesus on an equal par with Old Testament scripture. This was to fulfill is how you introduce a quote from the Old Testament. But John applies it to the prayer Jesus prayed back in John 17.12. I'm sure you remember Jesus praying to the Father, says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except Judas the son of destruction. Not one has been lost. Or John chapter 6 Verse 39, Jesus said, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Christian, take comfort in that. If you're a believer in Christ, if you are trusting Christ, not one of those who belong to Christ will be lost. Not then, not now, Not ever. Why not? Because the Good Shepherd has taken hold of them and He will never let them go. John 10.27 My sheep hear My voice. I know them and they follow Me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will be able to snatch them out of My hands. Is that your confidence, dear saint? Do you hear Jesus saying this? of you this morning? Will you believe what He says? See, these words are just as true today as they were when Jesus spoke them to His disciples and maybe for us even more so because we know how this ends. We know Jesus will die and rise again in victory over the forces of evil. I mean, what a great shepherd. That should give us such confidence as we consider what Jesus has accomplished. Because here's the third thing this morning. Jesus came to lay down His life for us and nothing, nothing, no nothing can prevent Him from doing it. But Peter doesn't know that. And so, impetuous, spontaneous, valiant perhaps, but so often clueless... Peter jumps in. Verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Do-do-do-do! You know, Peter to the rescue. Oh, you've got to love his heart. I mean, Jesus had warned him that he was going to deny him. Peter wants to prove that's not going to happen. So he whips out his sword and, you know, wham! Well, really, it's a big knife. Don't imagine a big giant sword. This is that little conceal and carry kind of sword that, that could be hidden beneath a cloak. And he jumps out and strikes poor Malchus upside the head. I've always wondered, why him? Why not one of those big burly soldiers standing over there fully armed? 
In my mind, I see him going, (laughs) that kind of thing, but I wasn't there. Maybe poor Malchus is just standing in the wrong place at the wrong time, or maybe even here Christ is protecting Peter. I mean, I would hate to think what would have happened to Peter if he had drawn on one of those train killers. And yet it does raise an important question. Why wasn't Peter arrested? Clearly he's broken the law here. I mean, attacking a temple official, wounding him, that should certainly have brought a pretty severe penalty. Two things, I think. Number one, Jesus did heal the man. <laughs> uh, Luke twenty-two fifty. 50. Uh, one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the ear and healed him. So even if there was a inquisition, where's the evidence? And it was night. The whole scene was just full of confusion. The authorities may not even have been sure who did it at all. And by the way, Jesus already said, let them go. But there is an interesting observation, kind of a little sideline. I'll hit it quickly. None of the other Gospels bother to mention which disciple struck this man. Like Luke, they all keep it vague. One of them did this. Only John names Peter as the assailant and Malchus as the man who was struck. Why? Well, I mention this because it, it's one of those little bitty details that lends to the historical credibility and accuracy of the Gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written some 20 to 30 years at most after these events. Peter would still have been alive. Jerusalem would still have been a city. Um, uh, Peter was still liable to to prosecution for a crime like this if word got out that he's the one that did this. And so those Gospels, it seems to me, protect him by not including this detail. But John is written years later. By this time, Peter is dead, martyred for his faith. Jerusalem itself is a heap of ruins destroyed by the Romans. There's no one left to pursue this case and no one left to pursue. John is free to name names, and he does. And of course, remember, John himself was standing there. He's an eyewitness to these events. He knows who got struck, and he knows who did the striking, and so now he tells us. I just find that interesting. That was free. But as valiant as Peter might have attempted to be, this is not the way of Christ. You do understand we are not Muslim. The gospel does not advance by the sword or by human power. Christ has all the power he needs. 10,000 angels, if I want him, they'd be here. In a second, he'll later say. So immediately, Jesus shuts Peter down. Verse 11, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter, there's a plan at work here. Uh, Peter may not recognize it. He's probably forgotten that he's already been told more than once. But Christ certainly has not forgotten. Because this is why he came. There is a cup he must drink. Now what does he mean by that? The mention of this cup. Peter may have wondered But Peter probably had a faint memory already echoing in his mind, even though he'd been a bit drowsy. Think about it. Just minutes before Judas arrived, Jesus, according to the other Gospels, had been praying about a cup. Now John skips over this part of Christ's prayer in the garden that we're so familiar with, but the other Gospels all focus on it. And remember, 
John assumes you've read those other Gospels. He knows they're out there and he tends to avoid retelling much that they tell us. And so he's, he's assuming, you already know that. He's assuming that when you hear Jesus' mention of a cup, the little light will go off. You'll be remembering, oh yes, there's a cup. Matthew 26, 39, for instance, tells us that in going a little further, this is before the soldiers ever arrived, uh, Jesus fell on His face and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. And He's going to pray that three times. If it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. The cup. What is the cup? What is the cup? Throughout the Old Testament, there is a cup that represents the wrath of God which He is preparing to pour out upon our sin. Psalm verse 75, Psalm 75 verse 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and He pours it out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs. Jeremiah 75 verse 15, Thus... The Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. There is a wrath of God that boils and seethes against our sin. A wrath that we are warned is stored up for us because of our sin and our hardness. Romans 2 verse 5, speaking to all of us, says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You say, I don't like that idea of God being a God of wrath. I'm sorry, but that's the only God there is. And it is the God that you must face and you will face. You must understand that there is a wrath in God that is coming against you in your sin and me in my sin. An appointment that we simply cannot avoid. God is holy. And His commands are holy, just, and good. All who defy Him bring this destruction upon themselves. And, and, And that's all of us, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are guilty in His courtroom. That there's not one of us here who is not marked by this sin and deserving of this wrath. And if you hear that and you say, but where is the love? My answer is that the love is standing right there in the person of Jesus. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. God in love sent His Son to bear our sin. The Son in love accepted the assignment. And so He's come here to offer Himself in our place and to take this wrath and drink this cup for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He willingly became our substitute. Listen, that's what was in this cup. The wrath that was meant for me fell on Him. Don't ever try to talk to me about a Christ who does not bear the wrath of God. That would be a worthless crucifixion that I'm not interested in hearing about. 
Christ came to bear our sin. And the word for that bearing, not only of our sin, but the bearing of God's wrath in our place is propitiation. I know that's a mouthful if you're not familiar with it, but it's a good one. Imagine God standing above you with this foaming cup of wrath meant for your sin in His hand. Ready to be poured out upon you for what your sins deserve. All of your lies, all of your bitterness, all of your falseness, all of your pornography, pornography, all of your self-centeredness, all of your hatred. God has this foaming cup and God tips that cup to pour its violence out upon you. And listen, it will consume you forever. For this is an endless wrath of an infinite God whom you have defiled. That's why hell's punishment is endless, not temporary. But in this image of what propitiation means, just as the cup is tipped, Christ mounts the cross, and all that burning rage against sin falls on Him, not you. Willingly, He stretches forth His hand to embrace the cup and drink it down to its dregs, leaving not a drop for you. That's propitiation. That's what Christ came to do. And nothing and no one will keep Him from doing it for His people. Dear friend, that is the depths of His love for those He came to save. 1 John 4 verse 10 says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. He came to drink this cup. He came to drink this cup. It's why He became man in the first place. We just celebrated at Christmas. Hebrews 2.17 says He had to be made like His brothers in every respect. He had to be human so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of His people. This is why He willingly gave Himself up. This is why He let Himself be bound and led away to execution. No one took His life. He gave it willingly in a sovereign surrender to save His people from their sins. Are you one of His people? Have you put your trust in Christ alone to save you through this sacrifice? Will you? Will you cast yourself on this sovereign Savior who did this freely to save us sinners from our sin? Will you, if you've never done so, look to Christ by faith, trusting Him alone for this finished work? This is what He came to do. And oh, Father, how I pray that we would see Christ not as a character in a novel, but through this perfect record, this infallible report, we would see Him as the sovereign King who has accomplished His purposes. Oh, Father, would You let us see Jesus here clearly? And would You let us respond to His call and respond to His sacrifice for the sake of His kingdom. Before you get too stirry and fidgety, we've placed the Lord's Supper at the end 
this morning for a very important reason, because this is exactly what we celebrate each Sunday as we take the Lord's Supper. We take the cup and drink it in remembrance of the cup He took for us. We eat this bread as a memorial to the body body He offered in our place. We celebrate the sovereign surrender of the Savior who gave Himself for us on our behalf. And as He freely offered Himself to us, so we offer ourselves back to Him in this memorial that we might live to the praise of the glory of His grace. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite the brothers up to, to share the cup. We'll do the song as we distribute. Is that okay? Or, okay? or at the end? Either way. I just realized I didn't tell Luke exactly what I had in mind here. Um, so let's pray. Father, Help us not to waste this next couple of minutes in seeing Christ, our sovereign sacrifice in our place. Help us not to go through a mere ritual, but to see in Christ's finished work all that we need. And so, Lord, open our eyes to behold Him. Lord, do not let silly technology or the foolhardy enemy blunt what You're doing in each heart as we consider Jesus. For believers, this cup represents all that Christ has done to secure our salvation. The bread that You're about to receive represents Christ who died as our substitute to set us free. By sharing these together, we acknowledge again publicly as a congregation and individuals our trust in Him. And we proclaim His death till He returns. And so share these now in full realization of what Christ has done, which you symbolically receive by faith once more. And so, eyes on Christ... Considering His finished work, let's prepare to celebrate the cup together. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. I just I love that image. It came from the Lord, delivered by the hand of a brother. Kind of like you just received it. You notice. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that He was betrayed took bread. When He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Lord, Your body in our place, bearing sin, bearing wrath, that we might be whole. The same way He took the cup, the cup, and all that that means. He took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. Lord, we proclaim you died, not a helpless victim, but the sovereign Lord laying down his life for his friends, the good shepherd fending off the wolves and giving life to your sheep. And Lord, we receive that gladly being reminded that this is what You've accomplished. God, now let us live in light of this gift and this good which You have placed in our hands. For Your name we pray. Amen.